Hello, and welcome to another episode of City on a Hill, a podcast about what it means to be a citizen of heaven and a citizen of the United States. We want to encourage Christians to find their tribe in the church and their hope in the kingdom of God, rather than to seek both in the kingdom of man. So with that, let's get to it today. Well, hello, I'm Eric Eastup. And I'm Scott Reevely. And this is the City on a Hill podcast. Welcome back, listeners. Welcome back, Scott. Oh, well, thank you, Eric. Scott, you're what? so kind. You do this every week. I, I do. I want you to know you're welcomed. And and Scott, maybe you can tell us what we're doing and who else we're welcoming on the show today. Well, I'm very excited to have a special guest today. Sarah Sanderson is uh, uh, lives nearby and is the author of The Place We Make, Breaking the Legacy of Legalized Hate. Uh, welcome, Sarah. So great to be here. Really glad that you are with us. I, uh, it, it's interesting, this book is probably different than most any book I've read that I can remember in that, first of all, I found out about it on a Google News alert. I said, uh, so those of you that are going to break the law in Oregon City need to know that I have a Google <laughs> News alert set for Oregon City, and I'll find out about you. But anyway, when the book came out, the day the book came out, there was a press release, and I got a notification that there's this book about uh, racism in Oregon City, and the fact that it's so close here made me think, oh, I got to read that book. And so I reached out to Sarah and I bought the book and read it and now she's here. But to give people just an idea of what this means to me, I, I walked to Oregon City for lunch. I mean, I walked within probably 200 yards of the center of the action that you described in the book just today. That's how close it is. And I've and so my mind was blown initially. I've never read a book that's that close to home. Mm. I mean, I've never lived in an interesting place. I've never <laughs> done anything interesting. So there's been no books about me or any place I've ever lived. So anyway, I was very excited, Sarah, about this. And um, I just would like to start maybe with the title, The Place We Make. I just, I think that's a lovely title. And uh, was it a, how did it come about? So as you mentioned, the, the book is about a story that happened close to home here mm -hmm. a long time ago. And so uh, when I brought the book to the publisher, my working title was The Place They Made, because to me it was about, the book is about the people who made Oregon in the 1850s and what kind of place they wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was the publisher who said, you know what, we want to make it a little bit more forward thinking. Let's change this to present tense. Let's change it to the place we make. And so mm -hmm. now that kind of brings in, and it was a point that I had wanted to make in the book, okay. of course, that we're still making the places where we are, but they wanted it to be right on the front. So yes, okay. the place we make. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I like that because we still are making the place and mm -hmm. we think, I think, oh, I live near Oregon City. That's like the oldest place in the West, right? Yeah. When in fact, I've got friends that live in other parts of the world who sort of laugh at me about their places have been made for thousands of years, mm -hmm. but now we're still making this place. So yeah. uh, you uh, you wrote about uh, some of your an ancestors or relatives in this mm -hmm. book, but how did you uh, how did you get started writing the place we make? So actually, the beginning of it was actually an assignment that a professor gave me. I, I did a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing, mm 
And I came into that program with um, a whole other book that I was working on. And then I got to my second year in that program and the professor said, Sarah, take a break from that other project. I want you to write a book about or not, not a book, not a book. It was not a book at that time. I want you to write an essay. <laughs> yeah, no. I want you to write an essay about something that you research. And that was the whole assignment, something oh. that you research. And so... That just, that just gives me school ache right yeah, now. Yeah, like, right? Oh, like, oh, no. I have to research. Yes. So, but it was very wide open, which I appreciated. So I remember sitting down and writing all the different things I could possibly think of that I might be interested in researching. And it was a very broad list. It had some sciencey things on the list and some psychology things on the list. And, and one of the items on my list was... Oregon's history of racial exclusion because I had recently moved back here. I was actually born here, moved away for most of my life, moved back in 2015. And one of the things I noticed when I moved back was there's a much higher, much lower racial diversity compared to other um, places I'd lived, hmm. much higher Where proportion did you move of from? white people. Um, I mean, I'd been in New Jersey. I'd been in Minneapolis had been in Chicago. So, you know, it would be a lot lot wider here than it is. It really is. And so um, that was uh, just an observation that I made. It was curious to me, but I sort of guessed, you know, like, oh, I guess they just like people didn't make it all the way here from, you know, wherever they started. Uh, And I had this conversation with my brother and he received a much more progressive education than I did. And he said, Sarah, didn't you know that Oregon was founded on anti-black exclusion laws? And I was like, no, I had no idea. So that was one of the things on my list of possible research topics. And I decided, well, let's go this direction, see what happens. And uh, I very quickly became really fascinated with this history of these anti-black exclusion laws that were in place from 1844 to 1926. And then as I was doing that kind of background research, this name jumped out at me, Jacob Vanderpool. He was the only person ever exiled from the state of Oregon under these laws. So they were in existence for over 80 years, but he's the Mm. only person who was actually legally exiled from Oregon because he was black. And that the fact that it was one person felt like, Okay, maybe this is a small enough story. Now I see the student coming yes, out. I yes. can write a small little essay <laughs> exactly. here, right? Yeah, okay. Well, you know, I can't. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm white. I, I don't have a lot of history of working in this area of racial reconciliation. I, I was coming to this whole topic cold, and I just thought, you know, I can't wrap my arms around everything, but maybe I can write about mm. one person. Okay. So I started started trying to research and um, kept Googling and Googling. And, you know, everything I found was just the same little blurb. Like Jacob Vanderpool was exiled from the state of Oregon. And there were maybe one or two more sentences, but not a ton more. Mm. And so I ended up, I did, though, find that there was a primary source in the University of Oregon Special Collections Library. And so one day I just decided, all right, Kids, get in the car. We're going. My kids were first, third, fifth, and seventh grade. And they came with me to Eugene, a couple hours drive south. And (laughs) as we're checking into the special collections library, um, you know, I'm I'm like signing in at the counter and the librarian goes, boys, get away from, what are you doing? Oh, yes. Turn around. (laughs) (laughs) My first grader is in a rolling chair 
my third grader is pushing him as fast as he can down the <laughs> hall. It's a hall filled with glass cases and historic artifacts, and the little feet are like headed straight for the glass. So, you know. That sounds like a, a trip to special collections. That it sounds like a research project. <laughs> it was a that research project. That sounds like project. my everyday. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Right? Yeah. So, you know, it just went from there. But uh, it was a really fascinating story to uncover some of these pieces. Well, so, so you wrote the essay, mm -hmm. but the essay is not the book. or Right. The essay is not the book. Okay. Yes. So I ended up with a 40-page essay. And, you know, I turned it in for school, and that was fine. I graduated from it's that program. It's kind of like a small book. It's kind of a That's small a book. Long essay. It's a really long essay. So, you know, after I finish this program, I'm trying to like, okay, now I'm a writer, right? Do I like does anyone want to read my stuff or publish what I've written? And and so I tried to send things out and you know, I thought that because I had an MFA that the world would just say, like, oh yes, we would like to publish you. And that did not happen. So at some point, I went back to this 40-page essay, and, you know, you can't publish a 40-page essay. I mean, have you ever – no one publishes 40-page right. essays, right? So I gave it to a friend, and I said, can you help me figure out what to cut so that I can make this story short enough that mm. somebody might actually publish it? And she read it, and I remember we sat down at a coffee shop over in Selwood, and um, she looked at me, and she said, Sarah – there's nothing to cut. This is not an essay. This is a book. You need to add more. Hmm. So eventually I did. I don't think I did at that time. It's been a six-year <laughs> journey of okay. coming back around to this story. And okay, I guess I'll try to find out a little more. So. Well, that's so you started with Jacob Vanderpool. Mm -hmm. And so when I read the book, the most interesting thing to me was that you were related to some of the people in the book, and I just assumed that you started this by researching your own family. Yeah, no. What was that like then to come into like, oh dear, these are my family members. Yeah, I had so no maybe, idea. So maybe you need to like say what the family relations right. are right. Yeah. so that people can understand, but then what was it like? Yeah. To so that is, is when it became a, an actual book, when I realized I wasn't just writing about Jacob Vanderpool, um, that I also had some other people in the story to write about. Um, but yeah, I had no idea when I first started researching him that I was related to anybody in this story. It just, wow. I mean, it just was, maybe it was a God thing, right? The, the name just jumped out at me. But um, I figured it out when I was walking in Oregon City. So you know where the elevator goes mm -hmm. up? So, you know, the, for right. those who aren't familiar with Oregon City, Oregon City has America's only vertical sidewalk is what they call it. Right. It's not an elevator. It's a <laughs> vertical sidewalk. Right. It's a public elevator that goes from the bottom of these cliffs to the top of the cliffs, and then there's, you know, houses and buildings up there. So I'm walking along, uh, and I recently realized as I went back into pictures, it was on my birthday. So apparently what I wanted to do on my birthday was going to walk up there with my family. So I'm with my family. We're strolling along, and I looked at there's some historic old houses up there, and they have, some of them have these little right. National Historic Register plaques. And one of them says, such and so, Lauderette House. And I was like, wait, that's my grandmother's maiden name. Hmm. I, like, are, is that my Lauderette? Like, how many Lauderettes are there? Is this my house? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Can I come here? Hmm. Um, so I, my grandmother is not with us anymore, but I called my aunts and I said, hey, like, do, do we have people in Oregon City? And they're like, oh, yeah. 
like tons of people. You know, they came over the Oregon Trail. They lived in Oregon City. I had no idea. Oh, my. So I started trying to figure out, because I had already started working on this Jacob Vanderpool thing. And then it was like, wait, am I? Emma, that's when it became personal because it was like, wait a second, this is, am I connected to this story? And I pretty shortly was able to, my aunt has this huge uh, family tree that has, you know, from Ooh. the people who came over from France in like the 1500s all the way Lateret, down. Yes. Wow. So, yes, all the lotterettes. So um, I'm like, she took a picture or I took a picture of it and I'm like zooming in and trying to find my grandma and like count back <laughs> and figure out and like who, who was in Oregon city when, and come to find out like, yes, I have, um, both direct ancestors and then also, you know, great uncles and aunts and things, um, who were in Oregon city. And I found out that my great, 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 I don't know how many greats, but one of my uncles, father-in-law was Ezra Fisher, whom mm -hmm. you know, we talked about that right. Ezra Fisher founded. He's, yeah, he was a pastor of the First Baptist Church in Oregon City. Yes, right. yeah. So he founded the first Baptist church west of the Rocky Mountains, which is yeah, pretty it's amazing. Not, I mean, when somebody says First Baptist Church, this was actually the yeah, first Baptist the first, church. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so the first, not very many gets, people get to do that. Thousands of right. miles. Yeah. So he was, he's related to me. He's not my direct ancestor, but he's up and over mm -hmm. in the family tree. Um, and then I just started thinking about, okay, I someone in my family was in Oregon City at this time when this man was exiled from Oregon for being black and what did my family do? What was their response? And so I went over to the Baptist church, you know, dug around in the archives mm -hmm. and um, trying to figure out, did he say anything? Did he do anything? You know, I wasn't trying to blame him or shame him. I just wanted to know, like, did, what did he do? Mm -hmm. um, and so that was one avenue of research. And then I was also looking at some of the other people in the case, um, Theophilus Magruder it was the guy who pressed charges against Jacob Vanderpool. And I was well into this whole thing when I recognized a name, a place name in his story and realized Prince George's County, Maryland. And it sounded familiar to me because hmm. I don't know, it just, it, it's one of those names that, yeah. you know. From, from some, you know, Hallmark Car, Hallmark or, movie or something, something. Sounds, yeah, Prince, sounds like that right, right? Prince George like yes. that sticks in your mind so um but I recognized it from some of the genealogical research that I've been doing and come to find out that so Lauderette is on my mom's side Ezra Fisher the pastor and professor mm -hmm. mom's side Theophilus Magruder who pressed charges against Jacob Vanderpool I'm related to him on my dad's side so hmm. so I yeah, I that mean, just blows my mind. Actually, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, and that you started an essay with none about of this somebody in else. mind. With none of this. Yeah. Yeah. And then just finding it, and and so that was what was so fun, really, about doing all this research was I kept discovering things that I didn't know, and and then figuring out what was already happening with this site. Like I, I really wanted to find the place where Jacob Vanderpool had lived and worked in Oregon City. And, and I had this idea that maybe I would go and, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but go and like say I was sorry, or maybe try to get somebody to put a plaque up or something, mm -hmm. you know. 
And I, so I tried and tried and tried to figure out where was it. I mean, spent years trying to figure out where the exact location was. And um, when I finally found it, through the help of some other organizations and different people who were actually like professional historians, mm-hmm. so they knew what they were doing a little bit more, um, the site where he lived is in the property that is now, it's been bought by the descendants of the original Clackamas tribe who lived at that site for 10,000 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, of course, we're forced to go and live in a, you know, go to the reservation, the Grand Ronde Reservation. Um, and that tribe has now bought that site back and they're redeveloping all those old factories are going to come down. I mean, it's going to be a lot of work. It's going to take mm. years, but um, and then I was able to connect the tribe with so the people who helped me figure out where Jacob Vanderpool was was there's a group called Oregon Black Pioneers that does historical research on you know the original Black Oregonians, and I was able to connect the tribe with Oregon Black Pioneers and actually be on the Zoom call where they were meeting each other for the first time. And now hmm. the tribe wow. is going to put a memorial to Jacob Vanderpool. Are they when they redevelop that site? So oh, that's I mean, cool. It's just huh? like I just blindly stumbled into the story, and things are happening now. That I mean, when I started writing the book, even when I got the book contract. I didn't know some of these things, and then I was able to. Mm. So the place where Jacob Vanderpool lived, I was wondering about this as I read it. It's behind the fence. It's behind the fence right now. So okay. So he was. It was like where the mills are right now. Yes. Yeah. On the south south side of Main Street. So that whole area is eventually going to be redeveloped by the tribe, and there's going to be a memorial. So. And then First Baptist was where Ezra Fisher's on the other end of town on on Main Street. Mm And was the courthouse where the trial happens where in the same kind of place where it is now? Yeah. So I think the original courthouse was maybe a block from where it is now. Okay. But, but it wasn't close. up on the hill or no, something. No, it was all... So all Main Street. It was all down there. There was nothing up on the hill at this time. So, oh, dear. I mean, there were trees. That's hard to imagine, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? It's is wow. hard to imagine. There's so much there now. Yeah. Okay. Can we give the listeners just a little recap of... So we've talked about yeah. uh, Vanderpool. Oh, that's probably good. I've, 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 I'm like Gruder and on this because I read the book, but <laughs> yeah. yes. Just, just a quick kind of synopsis of yes. the story. Yeah. So in 1851, <laughs> this guy named Jacob Vanderpool, um, he's considered in the court cases they call him mulatto. He's biracial. Um, he is a sailor who actually was born in the West Indies. Then he made his way to New York. He had a wife and three small children back home in New York. I imagine that perhaps he was intending to bring them to Oregon once he got settled. Um, but in 1851, he opened a saloon and boarding house. And there's ads in the paper. You can look online in the newspaper archives and see his original ads where he, you know, he just wanted people to come and have a meal and have a place to stay. Oregon City was a great place to do that because it's the end of the Oregon Trail. So people are coming in and, you know, laying claim to their land right there in Oregon City. Um, so about a month after Vanderpool first runs his ad in the paper, Theophilus Magruder takes over at a saloon boarding house down the street, and they're just a few blocks away. And 
The week after Magruder's ad is first in the paper, Vanderpool's ad doesn't run. It's the only week all summer that Vanderpool's ad is not in the paper. So I spend a lot of time imagining, like, mm. how, you know, how, mm -hmm. why is that just coincidence? Or does Magruder, like, threaten him? Or does he somehow get the newspaper to pull the ad or whatever? Anyway, um, a week after that, or no, not a week, a about a month after that, Magruder has pressed charges against Vanderpool and has said basically to the court system, like, look, this guy is black. He's not allowed to be here. So it's not 100% clear, like Magruder did this because he was a business competitor, but I think we can connect the dots, you know, most, Most likely, likely. Yeah. he wanted a way to eliminate his competition. And the, the way that he found to do that was to press charges and say, like, hey, this guy's breaking this law. And then one of the other figures that I looked at was Thomas Nelson, who is the chief justice of the Oregon Territory Supreme Court. And he, um, so this is another cool thing that I discovered. I found this letter online that he had written, and it wasn't even transcribed, so I have to, like, read the, old, you know, the sepia-toned, faded handwriting. Hmm. I really felt like a detective as I was doing all this work. Um, so Thomas Nelson, the judge, writes to his wife back home and says, um, hey, my... Uh, the boarding house where I'm living just got a new owner. He's put me up in this great, nice big room. He's giving me clean sheets every week. He gives me steak and it's great. And he's writing this letter two weeks after Magruder took over the boarding house. So again, one of these like, I'm not for sure, but I think it a case can be made that the judge who heard the trial is living in the boarding house operated by the guy who pressed charges. So mm. if that makes sense. So did, did he end up running both boarding houses or just, just the one? Just the one. Okay. So Magruder's down the street from Vanderpool. Vanderpool's black. Magruder looks down the street and goes, mm -hmm. hey, you're black. I want to get you out of here. And, oh, it so happens that the chief justice of the T Oregon Territory Supreme Court is in Magruder's boarding house. Mm. So he starts giving him special attention, then he pressed charges, and then his uh, client, who's staying in his house, who happens to be the judge, agrees with him and says, oh, you're right, he's black, he's not supposed to be here. Interesting. And this was in 1851? 1851. So pre-Oregon yes. as a state, yes. this is Oregon Territory. It's Oregon Territory. And yes. I, I think we had, um, there's the exclusionary laws on the original state books, but this would have been like Oregon Territory laws. Yes, so with there were similar. So there were the first territory law was put in in 1844 that said um, you're. It said if you bring enslaved people into Oregon Territory, you can keep them for three years. So effectively legalizing slavery in the territory for three years. At the end of that three years, all those people have to be gone, and if they're not gone, we're going to whip them 39 times. It was hmm. called the Lash Law. Um, there's no evidence that anybody actually was whipped, um, but, you know, who knows? That was the law. In 1847, they decided, oh, maybe that's too harsh. Like, we don't actually want to be whipping people, but we just don't want them to be here. So they got rid of that law, put in a new law. Um, you know, now we just want to say nobody's allowed to be here at all. Hmm. Um, or I might have that wrong. It might be 1849. Anyway, sometime there. Then, yes, you're right. Uh, 
when it become when Oregon becomes a state in 1857, I believe, um, again they put this law on the books saying nobody's allowed to be here if they are black. Well, you you had that in the book, so let me yes. read that yeah, just for the record yeah, yeah. here. Um, this is an amendment to the Oregon State Constitution, 1857, from the Oregon State Archives, and it says, No free Negro or mulatto not residing in this state at the time of the adoption of this Constitution shall come, reside, or be within this state, or hold any real estate, or make any contracts, or maintain any suit therein. And the Legislative Assembly shall provide by penal laws for the removal by public officers of all such Negroes and mulattoes and their effectual exclusion from this state and for the punishment of persons who shall bring them into the state or employ or harbor them. Yeah, so that was the law. And the Oregonians actually voted on it, um, whether they wanted that to be their law or not. And at the same time, they voted whether they were going to be a slave state or not. And so um, what they ended up voting was that they did not want Oregon to be a slave state, but they did want this law in the books that said blacks, Negroes or mulattoes are not allowed to be here. Um, and so Oregon becomes the only state to join the union with such a law on the books. That's, uh, that's quite a distinction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, when, you think, when you think about what an issue this has been for the, yes. in, in the history of our country, yeah. that, that it was that sort of direct yeah. in, um, in Oregon. And when you think about, like, it it was then voted off the books in 1926, which is in my grandmother's lifetime. And only 62% of the people of Oregonians voted to get rid of the law at the time. So when you think about that sentiment that was still there, you know, 40-some percent of the people, or 30, you know, I can't do math, whatever. <laughs> we're, we're tracking with you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so then to, to go down to the present day and, you know, my initial observation that kicked all this off, like, oh, this is a much less diverse place than other places I've lived. Well, there's a reason for that. Our history is still with us. Um, you know, not that that's the law anymore. But if you think about, like, my family came in the 1840s and some of us are still here. Mm -hmm. And so you think about... Vanderpool tried to come and his family's not here. And then there were other people who we have records that um, came over the Oregon Trail, black people came over the Oregon Trail, heard about the law, went and lived in Seattle or other places. Mm. So it had an impact, even though Jacob Vanderpool is the only person that was actually legally exiled. Who knows how many people would be living here today if that hadn't been on the books? Mm. Well, I mean, that's why it was on the book, so, right? right so that right. they wouldn't live here, and right. that was the whole point. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, 1926 seems, well, the, you know, the end of the Oregon Trail seems a long time ago mm -hmm. in my imagination. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, 1926 doesn't seem like yeah. that long ago yeah. to me. Yeah. But um, what, um, so what was it like for you when you found out that these were your ancestors or relatives? So what it made me realize was that this was not just an interesting story from a long time ago, that I needed to examine my own heart and my own life. Um, and so the way I ended up structuring the book was kind of going back and forth between these different white people who are involved, either directly or peripherally, you know, as bystanders, 
in this case. And then each different person that I look at um, kind of go back and forth with the chapters between that story and then looking at my own heart and my own life and kind of connecting the dots between what happened a long time ago and what can I notice about what's still here in me. And that was important to me because I've noticed that um, in this conversation, you know, we're having this national conversation about race. Um, a lot of times white people's response is, well, you know, that's not my problem. Like, I, I'm not racist. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to talk about it. And so I just wanted to come along and say, like, okay, you may be right. <laughs> like, it may not be your problem, but it is my problem. And I want to be honest about that because I don't see very many white people being honest about what's in our own hearts. And so that's what I've tried to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are there are a couple um, sentences in the book that speak to that that I thought were really great. And one said, we don't know what we don't allow ourselves to know. Mm-hmm was one of the things. And then another was when we insist on averting our gaze, it's our own sin to which we become most blind. Mm. I thought both of those were really um, insightful into the nature of the human heart, really. Um, Well, what, uh, you know, I mean, I don't don't get to talk to people who wrote the books that I read very often, but uh, what, uh, you know, maybe what are you doing or what, you know, what should I do mm-hmm. after having read this? I mean, it's not the place that yeah. they made. It's the place that we make. And, yeah. you know, I can walk there. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's a place yeah. that's still part of my life. Yeah. So, I mean, I've, I'm still figuring out my answer to that question, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is all kind of fresh for me. Like, I, as I said, I didn't really have an extensive background in this whole topic. And then I found myself getting drawn into this story. Um, I think that the first thing that's been important for me to do is just to prayerfully be willing to be honest about myself. Mm. Um, And I think that as Christians, we have such a unique um, resource to make that possible. I, I mean, for me, it's really the gospel that enabled me to even look at some of this stuff that I felt there was a, I had a lot of shame and a lot of fear about even writing this book and Mm. putting this stuff on paper and putting it out there for the whole world to see. And really it's because of Jesus's love and forgiveness that I could go, okay, (laughs) I'm going to trust you, Jesus. (laughs) Like you say that I'm forgiven. Um, So here we go. Um, So I think that the church really has the opportunity to be on the forefront of looking at some of this stuff, you know, both in our own hearts and in in history. Um, We have been forgiven. We know that. So we don't need to be afraid or ashamed of looking Mm. and being honest. So the the first thing is to try to be honest, um, both about ourselves and also about the history. I mean, every place has a story. Every place has a history. I mean, my daughter, just as I was just getting out of my car just now to come in the building, my daughter forwarded me an email 
she's a freshman at Wheaton College right now, and that's where my husband and I went. And uh, just today, Wheaton College Board of Trustees sent out an email, and they said, we set up a committee. We wanted to look at our racial history. What have we done? What have we done right? What have we done wrong? And hmm. the email really kind of highlighted, like, they have some great things in their history. I mean, it was a stop on the Underground Railroad. They hmm. were founded by abolitionists. Like, there's a right. lot to be proud of there. But then they also said there's things we have to repent of. Like for a time it was uh, against the law, not the law, but it was against the community code to date interracially if you were a Wheaton student. Mm -hmm. And there's, they, so they listed out some things that they were proud of and some things that they were sorry for. And I, I loved to see that, that, you know, this, the institution is doing the work of saying, what is our history? Mm. And I, so I think that that is kind of the next step for us as Americans, as you know, the church or whatever organization we're involved in, like to actually get specific and local about what is our past? Who do we need to ask? What basement archives do we need to dig up so that we can know what we're dealing with, know what we're talking about? And then, um, because otherwise it's too big, you know? It's mm. like... Well, it is too big. I mean, yeah. that's one of the overwhelming things about it. You're yeah. right. Yeah. But if we can get hyper-local about like, okay, what was going on like in this place under our feet now or this church or this organization? or, And then I think that when we do that, the, the way will be opened to us to figure out what the next step is with regard to that past mm. you know so if if the history was um you know this institution was literally built by enslaved people then you know maybe the next step is how do we figure out how to share the profits with people who are descended from those who are enslaved or whatever it is but i think that once we look at the specific history then that will help us to figure out what the proper response is mm. Well, I think there there are a couple of things that come to my mind. One is that you know, none of us come from nowhere. Mm -hmm. In other words, we all mm -hmm. come from a place, mm -hmm. and we all come from you know people, and we all have a history that has made us who we are. And I think some of what you're recommending or saying that you're doing anyway is coming to grips with some of the things that made you who you are. Yeah. And I think if you know, I, I, I told you that when I read your book, I was <laughs> I happened to be preaching on uh, Psalm 106 about uh, we have it says we have sinned and so of our fathers, and then the whole rest of the chapter is the sins of our fathers. It wasn't our sin; it was their fault that they just began to uh, acknowledge. And I think that the the value of coming to grips with the fact that we come from somewhere and from somebody mm -hmm. is it's helpful for us to recognize that those things shape us i mean it's just like you know i'm i don't i should be able to just rattle off how many years i've been married but um <laughs> it's okay i have to do that I, I know i should be able to do that <laughs> but the, the the reality is that the longer i'm married the more i realize how many things i came into this marriage with mm -hmm. that are now affecting my mm -hmm treatment of my wife or my mm -hmm. attitude mm -hmm. toward how she treats me or whatever it is i came from someplace mm -hmm. and that someplace comes with me mm -hmm. and i think that that's one of the things that's one of the reasons i really like the title the place that we make mm. and um so i think that's that's one of my takeaways is just that yeah i need to 
understand, I'll understand myself better. I'll understand my feelings, my reactions to other people and news events, whatever it is better if I understand my history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I love that you brought up Psalm 106 because I, I think it's so important to look at the biblical story of the nation of Israel. And when they got to that moment, you know, after they'd lived through all of the buildup of the sins increasing and, you know, the evil and all the things that are happening, the wicked kings and all that. And then God puts them in timeout. They go off into the exile and then they come back from the exile. And the first thing that they do, or one of the first things they do is they have this moment where they all, in Nehemiah, it says they stood in their places and they confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, a lot of people want to draw parallels between America and, you know, Israel. And are we, a, you know... We don't really hear. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but if we want to at least say, like, can we learn something from this, this other nation that's in the Bible that we want to emulate in some way? Maybe that's the place in the story that we need to identify with. Well, and I, I would probably put a finer point on it that not so much as Americans identify with Israel in that mm-hmm. repentance as with the people of God who mm-hmm. identify with yes. the people of God who were the nation of Israel. And there, I mean, that way of relating to God and relating to the world, I think, is probably a lot closer to what maybe Christians ought to do, even than Americans. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying it's mm-hmm. r- what Americans yeah. did was right. I'm just saying that my concern and our concern here is that we put a fine point on yeah. that Christians are a distinct people of God, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we need to respond differently than those who are not related to God. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, no, thank you for for that. The other thing that I will say that I enjoyed, and you'll have to read a, the book to figure out exactly how uh, Ezra Fisher was involved. Let's just leave that as sure. a teaser. Maybe Spoiler, people pick yeah. up the book. But um, one, of the, one of the other sentences that I still can't ke- stop thinking about from this is you said that Ezra Fisher was a product of his time. Mm. He's a pastor of the First Baptist Church. I mean, he started what now is Linfield College, and... He was, um, yeah, he was a pretty, um, I don't know, uh, successful, progressive, um, mm-hmm. significant person of his time, but he was of his time. And so we look back at the things that he said or that he didn't say with, you know, some level of judgment or condescension. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, you know, he, you know, he may not have even paid attention because that's just the way that the world was yeah. when he was there. And, yeah. and I mean, that's just, uh, I, I like that sentence because it's, pro, you know, it's provoked, f- mm. uh, fear isn't exactly the right word, but just this sense of responsibility that, yeah, I, I want to, I don't want to be a man ahead of my time or anything like that, but I want to be able to recognize you know, with a little more perspective than just my time. And so your history Mm -hmm. does that for us. Sarah, thank you so much for writing it. And um, I hope that uh, people will pick up the book, especially those who are, who are local, because that was, that's one of the things too, that I think we talked about um, before is just, there are a lot of problems that are a long ways away. Mm -hmm. And this one just happens to be within walking distance of where we're sitting right now. And for me, that alone is staggering and one of the reasons to to kind of read your book and to come to grips with it. And 
so I appreciate you writing it. I enjoyed the read. I, you, uh, I don't know, it probably took me three days or something over the, over the holiday. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have it very long before I read it, and I can't say that about most of my books. <laughs> they sit on my shelf for a long time <laughs> before I read them. But anyway, so thank you for writing it, and thanks for spending some time with us here. This has been really a, uh, a privilege to talk to you about it, and I, I do hope people will read your book. Thank you so much for having me in. It's been a joy mm-hmm. to have this conversation. Yeah, and we'll make sure that you can uh, link up to the uh, place to buy the book uh, in the show notes. Sounds great. Perfect. Well, don't forget, listeners, to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and rate us. If you find what we're doing helpful, a review would go a long way to getting this to other people and share it with a friend. If you have questions, send them to comment at cityonahillpodcast.com, and we look forward to the next conversation.